TED Audio Collective. When was the last time you disagreed with someone? I know I do basically every time I check the news or attend a faculty meeting. And if you're like me, when you disagreed, you might have thought to yourself, there is no way I will ever see eye to eye with this person. But with this type of thinking, we often miss a chance to see disagreement, not as a battle, but as a negotiation, not as a dead end, but as an opportunity. Welcome to the TED Business Podcast. I'm your host, Madhupa Akinola, Associate Professor of Management at Columbia Business School and Director of the Sanford C. Bernstein & Company Center for Leadership and Ethics. Today's talk is from Julia Dar from TED at BCG Toronto in 2018. Julia is a partner and co-founder of Boston Consulting Group's Behavioral Economics and Insights Initiative. She teaches us how to constructively disagree with others, rather than forcefully imposing our ideas on them, hoping to get them on our side. And Lord knows the world needs that right now. And of course, as a world champion debater, Julia would know a little something about constructive disagreement. Now, she uses these skills to teach and advise private and public sector organizations in a whole host of industries on their strategic direction. As you listen, pay close attention to how she makes the distinction between debating ideas versus debating identities, because that shift in mindset is actually the first step to finding better solutions together. This show is brought to you by Schwab. You're here because you like to keep a pulse on trends in technology. Well, now you can invest in what's trending in artificial intelligence, big data, robotic revolution, and more with Schwab Investing Themes. It's an easy way to invest in ideas you believe in. Schwab's research process uncovers emerging trends. Then their technology curates relevant stocks into themes. Choose from over 40 themes. Buy all the stocks in a theme as is or customize to better fit your investing goals. All in a few clicks. Schwab Investing Themes is not intended to be investment advice or a recommendation of any stock or investment strategy. Learn more at schwab.com slash thematic investing. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magirite is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Canva. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. 
Add a little curiosity into your routine with TED Talks Daily, the podcast that brings you a new TED Talk every weekday. In less than 15 minutes a day, you'll go beyond the headlines and learn about the big ideas shaping your future. Coming up, how AI will change the way we communicate, how to be a better leader, and more. Listen to TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. Some days it feels like the only thing we can agree on is that we can't agree on anything. Public discourse is broken. And we feel that everywhere. Panelists on TV are screaming at each other. We go online to find community and connection, and we end up leaving feeling angry and alienated. In everyday life, probably because everyone else is yelling, we are so scared to get into an argument that we're willing not to engage at all. Contempt has replaced conversation. My mission in life is to help us disagree productively, to find ways to bring truth to light, to bring new ideas to life. I think, I hope, that there is a model for structured disagreement that's kinder, mutually respectful, and assumes a genuine desire to persuade and be persuaded. And to uncover it, let me take you back a little bit. So when I was 10 years old, I loved arguing. This like, tantalizing possibility that you could convince someone of your point of view just with the power of your words. And perhaps unsurprisingly, my parents and teachers loved this somewhat less. And in much the same way as they decided that four-year-old Julia might benefit from gymnastics to burn off some energy, they decided that I might benefit from joining a debate team. That is, kind of go somewhere to argue where they were not. <laughs> and for the uninitiated, the premises of formal debate are really straightforward. There's a big idea on the table that we support civil disobedience, that we favor free trade. And one group of people who speaks in favor of that idea and one against. My first debate in the cavernous auditorium of Canberra Girls Grammar School was kind of a bundle of all of the worst mistakes that you see on cable news. It felt easier to me to attack the person making the argument rather than the substance of the idea themselves. When that same person challenged my ideas, It felt terrible. I felt humiliated and ashamed. And it felt to me like the sophisticated response to that was to be as extreme as possible. And despite this very shaky entry into the world of debate, I loved it. I saw the possibility and over many years worked really hard at it, became really skilled at the technical craft of debate. I went on to win the World Schools Debating Championships three times. I know, like, you're just finding out that this is a thing. <laughs> But it wasn't until I started coaching debaters, people, persuaders who are really at the top of their game, that I actually got it. The way that you reach people is by finding common ground. It's by separating ideas from identity and being genuinely open to persuasion. Debate is a way to organize conversations about how the world is, could, should be. Or to put it another way, I would love to offer you my experience-backed, evidence-tested guide to talking to your cousin about politics at your next family dinner, reorganizing the way in which your team debates new proposals, 
thinking about how we change our public conversation. And so as an entry point into that, debate requires that we engage with the conflicting idea directly, respectfully, face to face. The foundation of debate is rebuttal, the idea that you make a claim and I provide a response and you respond to my response. Without rebuttal, it's not debate, it's just pontificating. And I had originally imagined that the most successful debaters, really excellent persuaders, must be great at going to extremes. They must have some magical ability to make the polarizing palatable. And it took me a really long time to figure out that the opposite is actually true. People who disagree the most productively start by finding common ground, no matter how narrow it is. They identify the thing that we can all agree on and go from there. The right to an education, equality between all people, the importance of safer communities. What they're doing is inviting us into what psychologists call shared reality. And shared reality is the antidote to alternative facts. The conflict, of course, is still there. That's why it's a debate. Shared reality just gives us a platform to start to talk about it. But the trick of debate is that you end up doing it directly, face to face across the table. And research backs up that that really matters. Professor Juliana Schroeder at UC Berkeley and her colleagues have research that suggests that listening to someone's voice as they make a controversial argument is literally humanizing. It makes it easier to engage with what that person has to say. So step away from the keyboards, start conversing. And if we are to expand that notion a little bit, nothing is stopping us from pressing, pressing pause on our kind of parade of keynote speeches, the sequence of very polite panel discussions, and replacing some of that with a structured debate. All of our conferences could have at their centerpiece a debate over the biggest, most controversial ideas in the field. Each of our weekly team meetings could devote 10 minutes to a debate about a proposal to change the way in which that team works. And as innovative ideas go, this one is both easy and free. You could start tomorrow. <laughs> and once we're inside this shared reality, debate also requires that we separate ideas from the identity of the person discussing them. So in formal debate, nothing is a topic unless it is controversial, that we should raise the voting age, outlaw gambling. But the debaters don't choose their sides. So that's why it makes no sense to do what 10-year-old Julia did. Attacking the identity of the person making the argument is irrelevant because they didn't choose it. Your only winning strategy is to engage with the best, clearest, least personal version of the idea. And it might sound impossible or naive to imagine that you could ever take that notion outside the high school auditorium. We spend so much time dismissing ideas as Democrat or Republican, rejecting proposals because they came from headquarters or from a region that we think is not like ours. But it is possible. 
When I work with teams trying to come up with the next big idea or solve a really complex problem, I start by asking them, all of them, to submit ideas anonymously. So by way of illustration, two years ago, I was working with multiple government agencies to generate new solutions to reduce long-term unemployment, which is one of those really wicked, sticky, well-studied public policy problems. So exactly as I described, right at the beginning, potential solutions were captured from everywhere. We aggregated them. Each of them was produced on an identical template. At this point, they all look the same. They have no separate identity. And then, of course, discussed, picked over, refined, finalized. And at the end of that process, those new ideas are presented to the cabinet ministers responsible for consideration. But more than half of those, the originator of those ideas, was someone who might have a hard time getting the ear of a policy advisor, or who, because of their identity, might not be taken entirely seriously if they did. Folks who answered the phones, assistants who managed calendars, representatives from agencies who weren't always trusted. Imagine if our news media did the same thing. You can kind of see it now, a weekly cable news segment with a big policy proposal on the table that doesn't call it liberal or conservative, or a series of op-eds for and against a big idea that don't tell you where the writers worked. Our public conversations, even our private disagreements, can be transformed by debating ideas rather than discussing identity. And then the thing that debate allows us to do as human beings is open ourselves, really open ourselves up to the possibility that we might be wrong, the humility of uncertainty. One of the reasons it is so hard to disagree productively is because we become attached to our ideas. We start to believe that we own them and that, by extension, they own us. But eventually, if you debate long enough, you will switch sides. You'll argue for and against the expansion of the welfare state, for and against compulsory voting. And that exercise flips a kind of cognitive switch. You, the suspicions that you hold about people who espouse beliefs that you don't have starts to evaporate, because you can imagine yourself stepping into those shoes. And as you're stepping into those, you're embracing the humility of uncertainty, the possibility of being wrong. And it's that exact humility that makes us better decision makers. Neuroscientist and psychologist Mark Leary at Duke University and his colleagues have found that people who are able to practice, and it is a skill, what those researchers call intellectual humility, are more capable of evaluating a broad range of evidence, are more objective when they do so, and become less defensive when confronted with conflicting evidence. All attributes that we want in our bosses, colleagues, discussion partners, decision makers, all virtues that we would like to claim for ourselves. And so as we're embracing that humility of uncertainty, we should be asking each other, all of us, a question. Our debate moderators, our news anchors, should be asking it of our elected representatives and candidates for office, too. What is it that you have changed your mind about, and why? 
What uncertainty are you humble about? And this, by the way, isn't some fantasy about how public life and public conversations could work. It has precedent. So, in 1969, beloved American children's television presenter Mr. Rogers sits impaneled before the United States Congressional Subcommittee on Communications, chaired by the seemingly very curmudgeonly John Pastore. And Mr. Rogers is there to make a kind of classic debate case, a really bold proposal, an increase in federal funding for public broadcasting. And at the outset, committee disciplinarian Senator Pastore is not having it. This is about to end really poorly for Mr. Rogers. But patiently, very reasonably, Mr. Rogers makes the case why good quality children's broadcasting, the kinds of television programs that talk about the drama that arises in the most ordinary of families, matters to all of us, even while it costs us. He invites us into a shared reality. And on the other side of that table, Senator Pastore listens, engages, and opens his mind out loud, in public, on the record. And Senator Pastore says to Mr. Rogers, you know, I'm supposed to be a pretty tough guy, and this is the first time I've had goosebumps in two days. And then later, It looks like you just earned the $20 million. We need many more Mr. Rogers, people with the technical skills of debate and persuasion. But on the other side of that table, we need many, many, many more Senator Pastores. And the magic of debate is that it lets you, it empowers you to be both Mr. Rogers and Senator Pastore simultaneously. When I work with those same teams that we talked about before, I ask them at the outset to pre-commit to the possibility of being wrong, to explain to me and to each other what it would take to change their minds. And that's all about the attitude, not the exercise. Once you start thinking about what it would take to change your mind, you start to wonder why you were quite so sure in the first place. There is so much that the practice of debate has to offer us for how to disagree productively. And we should bring it to our workplaces, our conferences, our city council meetings. And the principles of debate can transform the way that we talk to one another, to empower us to stop talking and to start listening, to stop dismissing and to start persuading, to stop shutting down and to start opening our minds. Thank you so much. This show is brought to you by Schwab. With Schwab Investing Themes, it's easy to invest in ideas you believe in, like artificial intelligence, big data, robotic revolution, and more. Choose from over 40 themes. Buy as is or customize the stocks in a theme to fit your goals. Learn more at schwab.com slash thematic investing. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. Plus, Apple Card has no fees, not even hidden ones. 
Apply for Apple Card now in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on creditworthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at AppleCard.com. Well, if Julia was born a debater, my parents might say I was born a negotiator. Do you know one of the first things I negotiated? For my older sister to sell me the right to her inheritance, her birthright, as I had learned from a Bible story about twins Jacob and Esau that a birthright had value. What a strange child I was. So I listened to Julia's talk with the principles of negotiation in mind. Negotiation also happens to be a topic I teach and conduct research on. And my take is that Julia is teaching us to shift our perspective from the traditional view of disagreements as debates, where you convince another person that your position is best, to a perspective that views a disagreement as a negotiation, a process where you find common ground. Now, how do you find common ground with somebody whose views seem diametrically opposed to yours? How do you invite them into a shared reality? Well, I had the privilege of learning about negotiation from Max Bazerman, a pioneer in decision-making and negotiation science. What I've learned from Max and other negotiation scholars is that the key to finding common ground when you're trying to get to an agreement is to ask better questions. Now, there are three types of questions you should ask. Probing questions, open versus closed questions, and neutral questions. So let's say you're disagreeing with your co-leader about who to include on a particular project. Our dominant tendency might be to say, why do you want John on the committee? Well, a question like that might prompt defensiveness. A better question could be, What are the specific qualities the committee lacks right now that you think John can bring? This is an example of a probing question, a question that seeks specifics and deeper details to bring a person's point of view to light. Other ways to probe might include saying, tell me more, help me understand, or what happened next? These questions lead to more thorough responses. Now let's say you're disagreeing with somebody about an approach to use on an upcoming pitch and you clearly think your approach is superior. And let's add for kicks that you've gone back and forth about this and you are so ready to be done. You might be tempted to say, are we going to use my approach? Yes or no? This is a closed question. And negotiation science teaches us that we want open questions, those that begin with who, what, when, where, and why. A better question would be, what would you need to believe or need to know to use the approach I'm suggesting? Notice, this question also includes a little probing, which again can be super helpful in understanding the other side. And finally, let's say you're likely to disagree with someone your colleague, friend, boss, client, a family member, on how something's going, and you need to negotiate a path forward. You think the project is going well. They might think it's going terribly. You're disappointed in someone's performance. They might feel their performance was stellar. 
make sure not to ask loaded or leading questions. Questions like, hasn't the project been a great success so far? This leading question will not lead to a more thorough response and will likely promote defensiveness. That's according to organizational communication, negotiation, and conflict management researcher Linda Putnam. To promote more open responses, try a neutral question like, how would you assess the project thus far? This is a lot less confrontational and will help you better understand the other person's perspective. The answers might even bring you a kind of empathy for the other side that you never expected to have. Now that I've heard Julia's talk, there is one final question I'll ask next time I'm preparing for a conversation with someone who doesn't share my perspective. What would it take to give you goosebumps? That's a very high bar, but as Mr. Rogers found, this physiological response can be helpful in getting someone on your side. Thanks for listening to this episode. TED Business is hosted by me, Madupa Akinola. Grace Rubenstein is our producer. The show is edited by Sheena Ozaki and mixed by Dan DeZula. And special thanks to Colin Helms, Michelle Quint, Angela Chang, Corey Hajim, and Anna Phelan. And if you want to dig deeper into negotiation, check out Ted's podcast, Work Life with Adam Grant. We've got an episode on the science of the deal that I really think you'll enjoy. Talk to you next week.